You're listening to the Grace Point Northwest podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Grace Point Northwest is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. Now we hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday gathering. This morning, we're going to be continuing our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. And if this is your first time with us, and maybe you've missed the past couple of messages, you can check those out online. But we have called this study the imperfect church because that's exactly what we are. Just like the church in Corinth, we are an imperfect church made up of imperfect people joyfully striving to show a perfect Savior. And last week we discovered that what was going on in this imperfect church in Corinth is that they were divided. There were divisions taking place. What was happening is there were people listening to preachers and rather than magnifying the message of that preacher, they were magnifying that preacher. And what ended up happening is strong divisions started to take place within the church, dividing people. Some saying, I'm following Paul. Some saying, I follow Paulus. Some say, I follow Peter. But what happened was, is Paul told them that we are not to magnify preachers, but we are to magnify their message. And so he told the church to be unified around the message of Jesus. However, since Paul has left, that message has become cluttered. You see, I learned about clutter in a hard way when I was in college. When I was in college, I lived in a dorm. And in my dorm room, I basically, by the end of the semester, had a foot of stuff all over the floor. You see, what was going on that semester is not only was I going to school full-time, but I was playing soccer full-time, and I was also doing an internship back in Louisville, Kentucky. I was going to school in Cincinnati. And so needless to say, there wasn't a whole lot of time to clean up. However, when I got done with that last final, my roommate and I immediately rushed back to the room because we knew it was going to take hours to clean. As we were cleaning, I was removing a ton of clutter from all over the floor. And then all of a sudden, I remember picking up this brand new pair of shoes, I looked at my roommate and I said, hey, are these yours? He said, no, they're not mine. And I knew they weren't mine. But at that moment, I had my door open, walked past our neighbor, Joel. He looked in the room. He goes, hey, those are my shoes. And I was like, what? He walked in. He goes, those are my shoes. Well, here's what had happened. Early in the semester, Joel must have come into our room to eat our food or watch a movie with us, took off his shoes and left them there. Over the course of that semester, more and more stuff got piled upon those shoes. And I did not realize Joel had been looking for them all semester long. You see, the problem in that wasn't Joel's shoes. What was the problem? All the clutter. It was me, basically that basically everything in our room was on top of those to where you could not see them clearly. And what Paul is going to tell us today is that the Corinthians have allowed a bunch of clutter not to cover a pair of shoes, but something far worse. You see, just like those shoes, Paul is going to share that the Corinthians have allowed a bunch of clutter from the culture as well as their misconceptions to obscure the word of the cross. And just like my roommate and I had to remove a bunch of stuff to discover those shoes, Paul is going to attempt to remove the clutter the Corinthians have allowed from the culture on the cross, trying to declutter it. For when the cross is decluttered, you and I will see that it brings new life. You see, that's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 18, he writes this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us, that's Paul included, who are being saved, it is the power of God. Within the Corinthian culture, there were radical polarities taking place. We talked about some of these last week. For instance, there are some people in this room that are Mac people. 
Some people are PC people. There are some people in this room who play video games on a PlayStation. There are some who play video games on an Xbox. And then there are some who say, Xbox, PlayStation, we only play on computers, right? There's some of us in here that are Pepsi drinkers. Some of us in here are Coke drinkers. Some of us in here are Democrat. Some of us are Republican. But I want you to imagine with me that you try to go up to a diehard iPhone user and you begin to share with them the greatness of Android. What do you think their reaction would be? Probably not that great. You see, my home state of Kentucky is polarized by Louisville fans and Kentucky fans. And several years ago, Kentucky and Louisville were playing in the Final Four. There were two older men who were at a clinic getting a dialysis treatment. When all of a sudden, one of the guys, and I quote, started running their mouth and said Louisville was going to win. With that, the Kentucky fan punched him in the face while they were getting treatment. Strong polarities taking place, right? Well, within the Corinthian culture, they had similar polarities taking place. Some were barbarian, some were Roman. Some were Greek, some were Jew. Some were slave, some were free. Some were male and some were female. Yet Paul says there is a polarity that surpasses all of these that is taking place in the world. And it's people's reaction to the gospel. It's their reaction to the content of the word of the cross. People say... Paul says that when people hear the word of the cross, they're going to have two reactions. Some are going to look at it and go, it's folly, it's moronic, it's stupid. There are others, however, that are going to say it's the power of God. Think about what Paul is saying here. You will not be indifferent. You will not be indifferent. It's impossible. You might be confused. You might be ignorant. But when you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of the cross... You will not be indifferent. You will either love it or you'll be repulsed by it. Take, for example, something like cottage cheese. Some of us in this room, when we hear cottage cheese, we're like, yeah. Some of us in here are like me and go, gross. There's nobody in here like, eh, I might go with or without it. I mean, we got strong differences. I talked to my son recently. He was at school. He said, dad, people who are like Marvel comic people, they like can't stand DC, and DC people can't stand Marvel people. They're not like, uh, eh, they're okay. And think about the city in which you and I live in. Over the years, I've had many conversations with people who have lived here for a time, and I've never heard anybody just kind of go, I was all right. Most of the time, they either loved Las Vegas or they hated it. And as I was preparing for this message this week, I was reminded of a situation I had about a year ago in which I was sitting on a bus talking with a guy of another faith about the gospel. And when I got to the point where I talked about the God-man Jesus Christ coming here to earth to live a perfect life, to die on a cross, not just for me, but instead of me, I literally saw this man's face turn to like he was going to be sick. Why? Because God dying on a cross was utterly repulsive to him. It was blasphemous. Paul says that those who are perishing, literally those who are calling the cross folly. And why are they doing that? It's because the word perishing is extremely significant. It means that those who are perishing are in the process of being ruined or destroyed apart from God in hell. Imagine with me that there's somebody walking with their head down, walking towards a cliff with their head down and their eyes fixated on the content of their phone. And as they get closer and closer to that cliff, you scream out to them, stop, watch out, you're going to walk off a cliff. 
And with that, they end up responding, no, I'm not, you moron, but they never take their eyes off the phone. That is the image Paul is trying to give us here. You see, those who have cluttered the cross with cultural wisdom, those who have cluttered the cross with misconceptions and they demand signs, it's those who look to worldly wisdom and the need for signs to accompany the cross that are missing the true meaning. One theologian says it like this, and I love what he says. I think it'll be up here on the screen. It says, the cross is nonsense to some because it represents such a repugnant worldview. It is an assault on the values of power, glory, honor, and success. So dear to Corinthian and many other societies. That's how some approach the cross. But there's another group of people Paul talks about that do not believe the cross of Jesus is folly. But rather, those who are being saved see the cross of Jesus Christ as what? The power of God. Growing up, there were two things you did not talk about with other people openly. That was religion and politics. I believe Paul, in the first century, would have added on to that crucifixion. You see, Paul's preaching in Corinth was focused on the saving fact of Christ's crucifixion, a method of execution so crude it was not even allowed to be brought up in polite conversation. And in our society, in our day and age, I believe we have lost a lot of the meaning of the cross. You see, we have crosses hung around our necks. We have crosses tattooed on our bodies. We have crosses fixated on the walls of our house. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But think about how that would have impacted somebody from the first century. To have a cross around your neck or tattooed on your body is the equivalent of having like a guillotine, a gas chamber, or an electric chair on you. And picture yourself going over to a friend's house for dinner. As you walk in, sit down, all of a sudden you look on the walls and you see fixtures that basically portray electric chairs. And right there on the mantle for everyone to see is a beautiful picture of an electric chair. What would your reaction be? You'd probably fake you were ill, get out of there as fast as you can and never go back, right? Paul is saying that's how the cross would have been to those in the first century. And the cross was so much worse than an electric chair because it was a shameful way to die and it was reserved for Romans and for slaves. For somebody who was Jewish, to see the cross, Paul is going to tell us in a little bit, it was a stumbling block. For the Messiah to die on a cross was shocking. It was repulsive. But for Greeks, they literally thought it was ludicrous and not the rapper, okay? Ludicrous, outlandish, crazy. I mean, how many of us, what would our reaction be if all of a sudden we heard on CNN that there was this man who died in some remote Middle Eastern country and that his death basically determined the eternal destiny of everyone in the world? How many of us would really keep on watching that? Probably not many of us. Yet for some of us in here who've experienced the mercy and call of God, who have not allowed the clutter of the culture and misconceptions to get in the way of the cross, we do not see the cross as folly, but we see it as the power of God. The power of God to do what? To forgive sin, to bring new life, to defeat Satan, and to conquer death. You see, Paul tells us why there was and there is such drastically differing uh, responses to the cross. He says it in verse 19. Look to what he says. For it is written, I will draw, destroy the wisdom of the wise 
and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. What is happening in Corinth is not new. If we're honest, we're dealing with it right now. Paul says here that God is going to destroy the wisdom of the world. He's going to frustrate it. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 29 verse 14. And verse 14 in chapter 9 is basically part of a judgment oracle against the nation of Judah. In Judah, the religious leaders and the political leaders were trying to form an alliance with with Egypt. And God said no. God told him through the prophet, you trust in me. But the religious leaders were basically saying, God, we're not going to trust in you. We're going to trust in ourselves and do what we want. These people were literally planning, thinking, and acting as if there was no God in their lives. Now, don't get me wrong. They were still filling their days with worship. They were still offering sacrifices. They were still going to church, if you will, like many of us. Yet God says that their religion is basically absurd. Why is that? Because all of their religious doing was out of duty, not out of a devotion and a relationship to God. Therefore, their religious piety was a sham. God was basically telling them, you are functioning as religious atheists. He goes on in Isaiah and the surrounding verses there to say, these people honor me with their mouths. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The wisdom of the wise men shall what? Perish. And what is the wisdom of the wise man? It's self-sufficiency. It's disregard for God. You see, Paul states that in Corinth, they're really, they're really no different than these leaders in Judah. And I would argue that it's not really that different for us today. You see, rather than trusting in the way of the cross, there are many who were and are trusting in their wisdom and might for salvation, not in, not in God, they're really no different than those religious and political leaders in Judah. You see, the message of the cross, guys, will always be folly. It will always be offensive to those who are trusting in themselves. And that is why the cross is folly and many don't recognize it. They have allowed the clutter of man-made religion to come into their life that worships the autonomous self. And so Paul brings this to light in the Corinthian church. Listen to what he says. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who, or through what we preach to save those who believe. Paul essentially says, where's the Greek philosopher in Corinth who can tell you all the meaning of life and death? Which one of them predicted or or basically discerned this plan of redemption of God? He says, where is the Old Testament scholar, the one who knows is an expert in the law of God? Tell me, did he foresee the redemption of God? He says, where are your public political figures, your public speakers, if you will? Which of them foresaw this to come? His answer is this, none. Why? Because God has not allowed himself to be known through worldly wisdom. Do you see what God is telling us here? He's saying the world would have never brought us the cross. The world would never even have fathomed the cross. Therefore, you nor I should ever look to the world to provide what only God and God alone can give. You see, the wisdom of the world will only clutter that which God has revealed. 
And have you ever stopped to take a moment to really think through the gospel, to think about how crazy the cross sounds, how odd the gospel really is, counterintuitive, counterintelligent, if you will. I mean, this is what we say. There was a guy who lived 2,000 years ago, spoken of before the ages, claimed to be God. He lived a perfect life. He died as a criminal on a cross by Romans, not for anything he did, but everything that we have done. He came back to life three days later. Forty days later, he ascended to heaven. And guess what? He's going to come back again riding on a horse. And if you trust in him, you can have all of your sins forgiven. If you surrender to him, you can have life, purpose, identity, heaven. Without him, you go to hell. The culture looks at us and goes, so you're telling me your only hope, your only joy, your only life is found in a bloody man on a cross? And we look back at the culture and we say, yes, but he's not just a man. He's God. Like when you hear that, some of us in here are going, yeah, it sounds a bit crazy. But listen to what one theologian says. He says, the gospel is not some new Sophia, wisdom or philosophy, not even a new divine Sophia. For Sophia allows for human judgments or evaluations of God's activity. But the gospel stands as a divine, a divine antithesis to such judgments. Listen to what he says. No mere human in his or her right mind or otherwise would have ever dreamed up God's scheme for redemption through a crucified Messiah. It's too preposterous, too humiliating for God. You see, no human would have ever made up what we believe in the church. This is how God has destroyed worldly wisdom. This is how God has made it utterly foolish. You see, worldly wisdom tries to domesticate God. It tries to pridefully put God in a box of their own making. Yet God will not have it. Paul says it pleased God to save those who do not trust in the God of their imaginations or the God of their own making, but those who trust in what he has provided, his salvation through the cross. But this is extremely hard for some people to accept. And that's why Paul says amongst those who are perishing, there are two groups. Listen to what he says. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Verse 24. But to those who are called, that is unto salvation, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul says that Jews demand signs. He's basically saying they will not come to God on his terms, but rather God must come to them on their terms. They want to put themselves in the driver's seat. And it's here we start to see some of the clutter that gets put before the cross. You see, those who demand signs are those who basically say, God, I'll follow you if, I don't know, you help me pass this test. God, I will follow you if you heal my marriage. God, I will follow you if you allow me my independence. You see, the Jews for a long time have been awaiting this Messiah to come. And over time, they had some misconceptions of what he might actually do, and they missed him. They would basically thought he would be this ruler who would come down, who would establish his kingdom, that nobody would be able to protest his power, that he would overthrow Rome, and that he would establish his kingdom forever. 
that basically the Messiah is one who is to do X, Y, and Z. And when Jesus came, their expectations went through the roof. I mean, imagine, he comes onto the scene. This man's basically taking a snack pack, right? And he's multiplying it to 5,000 people, distributing food. He's bringing people back to life. Who can stop that man? But then, Jesus gets put on a cross. And he's crucified. And they look at him and they go, what? That can't be. You can't kill the Messiah. You see, Deuteronomy 21 says it like this. It says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. You see, a Messiah who was crucified, a Messiah who was crucified was cursed. And to them, that was impossible. And so they had no place for it in their, in their mind. It was clutter, if you will. They had something blocking them from seeing the cross of Jesus clearly. Greeks, however, were completely different. You see, within a Greek society, it wasn't so much a democracy as it was a meritocracy, meaning it's not about what you receive, but what you achieve. And within that culture, money was currency, but what was valued more than money was wisdom. Because like our culture, those who have a power and influence are technically oftentimes those in Hollywood or those who perform well on an athletic field. One theologian says it like this. He says, in Corinth, public orders were those who had, by pa had power and influence. These people would receive adulation and acclaim that is today lavished upon movie stars and sports figures. Therefore, if you wanted to be a somebody, you had to get wisdom. And that leads Stephen Um to say this, wisdom then was viewed as a tool for achieving self-gain. You see, Greeks are not much different than the Jewish people. Jewish people demanded signs. That means if Jesus was to be Messiah, he must meet them on their criteria. The Greeks, however, demanded wisdom. They basically said that if Jesus was going to be in my life, he better be an advantage to me. He better help me gain power and influence in society. You see, by that time within Corinth, the emperor Trajan had basically said Christianity was a pernicious superstition. And the Gentiles would often talk of the message of the cross not merely as eccentric, harmless folly, but as dangerous, deranged stupidity. I mean, you talk about clutter. I mean, how many of us know of people or how many of us refuse to follow Jesus for a long period of time because what it might cost us? You see, I was living in a city for four years in which I met a man, no lie, sat down and looked at me. He said, for me to follow Christ, it cost me my family because his wife went and got the marriage annulled. It cost him his job. It cost him his community. It cost him basically almost everything but his head. And what Paul is saying here is there's some people who will not follow Christ because he doesn't add to their life, but he seems to take away. Take away relationships, take away income, take away affluence and influence in the culture. You see, this clutter, guys, is extremely thick, is it not? 
I mean, as I was preparing this text all week, I'm sitting under the weight of this, trying to put myself in this situation. I could feel that pressure. I mean, this is hard. And I thought, how in the world can anybody break free from this? And what I oftentimes point people to who are struggling with this sort of way of thinking is I tell them to look for the big butts in the Bible. And what I mean by that is when you see a butt in the Bible, what's going to follow that butt? And I just said it a lot, so I know I got my kids' attention. What's going to follow that? Grace. Grace always follows the butt. He said there are some that see it as folly. There are some who demand signs. There are some who want wisdom. But, and what does he say? But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, if everyone in the world sees the cross of Jesus Christ as foolish and repulsive, how does anyone get out of it? And what does Paul say? Or by God's gracious call. You see, in the Bible, when you see the word call, is most oftentimes used in such a way as bringing somebody out of a rebellious state towards God into a right relationship with God. And we see this most clearly in Acts chapter 9. You see, in Acts chapter 9, we learned about in the first week that Paul was on his way to where? Damascus. With letters to do what? To throw Christians into jail. And while he's on his way to, to Damascus, who does he encounter? The resurrected Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus do? He takes this man who is hostile towards him. And he squashes that. And he pushes him into a relationship with himself. You see, Paul was one of those Jews who demanded signs. He wanted the Christ to be the Messiah who ruled and reigned, who overthrew Rome. He doesn't get crucified. For him, the crucifixion represented the curse of God upon Jesus. But when he met the resurrected Jesus, he understood that Jesus didn't bear his curse on the cross. But whose curse did Jesus bear? He bore ours. And so what does Romans say? That God raised this Jesus from the dead a resurrected Messiah, vindicating him, showing that what he did through his life, death, and resurrection was enough to rescue you and me to bring us into a relationship with God without a scrap of our assistance. You look in the second letter that Paul writes, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther calls this verse the great exchange. That on the cross, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to carry, to bear our sin. So that through Jesus, you and I might become what? The righteousness of God. What this means is that our sin, our shame, our rebellion, our treason towards God was credited to Jesus' account. And Jesus' perfect life, his righteousness, was credited to our account. Probably the best way I know to explain this is when I got married. You see, when Jess and I met, she was already done with school. And she was working a full-time job in Louisville, Kentucky as a graphic designer. She enjoyed that and she had a considerable amount of income for that time in our lives coming in. I, on the other hand, was still in school. And I was working as an intern at a church, barely making it by. That was our situation going into our marriage. But on July 14, 2001, I received the best gift that I could receive on this earth, and that is my beautiful wife, Jess. 
People oftentimes ask me to write a bio, and I'll always write in that bio, second to Jesus, the greatest joy in my life is my wife Jess and my three children. Yet that was not the only thing I received that day when I said I do. I also received cash flow. And here's what I mean. You see, in that moment, there was very little money in my bank account. But when I said I do, my account went from a negative to a positive. How? Because in that moment, everything that was my wife's now was in my account too. You understand what I'm saying? I didn't have to go be a graphic designer. I didn't have to go back to school. All I had to do was say, I do. And everything that was hers became mine because of my union with her. Now think about it. In a far greater way, the Bible says that when God calls you and me out of this life of folly, out of this prideful demanding of signs, he unites us to Jesus by way of what? The cross. And in that moment, we trust in Jesus. Everything that is Jesus's now is accredited to our account. Righteousness, sanctification, redemption, holiness. He has given it to us all. Once we trust in Christ, and God enjoys that. Think about the difference this would make in your life if you follow Christ and you understand that everything that is said of Jesus, everything that Jesus has is now giving over to you. That means that Jesus' baptism, when the Father says, this is my son who I'm loved, with whom I'm well pleased, guess who God is also saying that to? All of those who are united to Jesus. That means you. You look in Luke chapter 15, verse 10. What does the text say there? That there is more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. For years, I oftentimes used to talk about that when people would get baptized, angels in heaven are throwing a party. But the text says what? That the, the joy wasn't with the angels, but it was before the angels of God. And who's before the angels? God. God is the one who's smiling. God is the one who is happy to rescue people, to call people out of darkness and into his family. That's what Paul is trying to get across to us. You see, when we understand this, that our relationship with God is not dependent upon how good we are, but how good Jesus was on our behalf, it destroys all pride and boasting. That's what Paul points to in the next part. He spent a considerable amount of time talking about those who don't follow the cross. Now he's going to talk about those who do. And listen to what he says. He says, For consider your calling, that is God's work, not ours, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. I mean, that kind of stings, does it not? I mean, basically what he's saying there is you weren't voted most likely to succeed. You were probably voted most likely not to succeed. I mean, you weren't the somebodies when God came. You were a bunch of nobodies. Yet why would Paul do this? He wants to remind them of who they are. You see, what he is talking about here is Jeremiah chapter 9. And in Jer Jeremiah chapter 9, it says that the truly wise person does not boast in their wisdom, their strength, and their wealth. Why? Because the culture esteems those things. And though they might be of some worldly good, they are of no eternal good. You see, God is not impressed by these things. They are not the reason he calls them. 
And so you nor I should allow this clutter into our lives. Paul says that God doesn't choose the best and the brightest, but the down and out. Look at verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Verse 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. You see, those in Corinth boasted in their intellect and their rhetoric. But God has chosen not to save those who have, but those who have not. You see, where the proud men and women of mighty intellects would boast in those things, God chooses the simple and to what end? To shame those who are boasting in themselves. You see, God has brought those things to nothing. They're nothing. It's not how he loves us. And what we've got to understand is that by doing this, God is graciously calling those who are boasting in their might to take their eyes off their might and to look to Jesus and what he has done for them. That's why he says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, what? Wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God does not call you or me because of something good within us. If he was to do that, think about what would happen. You and I would have to boast in God maybe 98% of the time. But we would have to boast in ourselves at least 2% of the time. Why? Because God chose us because of that good thing in us. Paul says this is absolutely not the case. God has not chosen you. God has not rescued you. God has not saved you because you're all that in a bag of chips. God has rescued you surely out of his own generosity and love for you. Listen to what David says in Psalm 70. He says, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, who is great? God. May those who love your salvation say forevermore, God is great. That's who we are to worship. That's who we are to praise. And what that should do is put us in a position of humility before the world that says what we believe is folly. We know that the only reason we believe is not because we were smart enough, good enough. It's not because we read something and went, voila, there it is. But it's a work of the Spirit of God within us. That's why. And it pushes us to go out. J.D. Greer is a pastor, and I love what he says here. He says this, He says, in every human heart, there's a throne and a cross. Somebody has to be on the throne and somebody has to be on the cross. We prefer us to be on the throne and Jesus to be sort of in the co-pilot seat. Yet there is no co-pilot seat. Jesus doesn't take the wheel, okay? There is only a throne and a cross. If Jesus is on the throne and we are on the cross... That means we have died to control of our life and we've given it to him. And you die to any supposition that you are good enough to earn his favor or earn your way into heaven. In every heart, there is a throne and a cross. If self is on the throne, Jesus must be on the cross. If Jesus is on the throne, self must be on the cross. And the question I have for you and for me today is, what are you boasting in? 
when you are bored, what does your thoughts drift towards? Because oftentimes what those things drift towards are the things we're seeking salvation in. You see, what Paul is saying is that Jesus is the one who is to be on the throne. Because when Jesus is on the throne, guess who we're going to boast in and boast in alone? Jesus. It's always going to be about Jesus. And that's why Paul finishes up in chapter 2 talking about when he came to the Corinthians, what did he do? He preached nothing but Jesus and Jesus alone. Listen to what he says. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of who? God. You see, teachers in Corinth would stand before the crowds, and they would teach, and they would share things. And why would they do that? To gain applause and adulation from the crowd. Paul says that when I came, I intentionally did not seek you after me but I intentionally put Jesus before you so that you wouldn't seek after me, but you would seek after Jesus. He focused on Jesus and him crucified. You see, when we allow clutter to get in the way of the cross, self-sufficient man-made wisdom is the result, not God. But when you and I get all that clutter out of the way and we see the cross for what it truly is, it's like seeing in color, Maybe some of you guys have seen this video, but check this out of this man who saw color for the first time and watch his reaction. You see, that is the Christian response when the clutter is removed and you see the cross for what it truly is. It causes you to break. It causes you to go, I'm not going to pursue the worldly, self-made, man-made religion. It causes you to push away the misconceptions that you might have put on the cross. Because when you see Jesus for, true he, for who he truly is, you see him in color, if you will, you all of a sudden realize the outlandish and crazy love of God he has for you. And imagine if we allowed that love of God to so fill our hearts that it radically changed the way we loved one another within the church. Because what did Paul say? For us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's Paul included. And he's including us all. That's what it's like to let go of man-made, self-righteous religion, if you will, and to cling to the cross of grace. What are you boasting in? Are you boasting in yourself? Or are you boasting in Jesus' cross? Let me pray.